invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'll give you a moment to turn there. You'll find our main text printed in the bulletin as well. As you're turning, you'll turn to chapter 5. We've been working our way through this epistle for some time now, a couple of months. And as we move into the very last section of this book, you're going to notice something. Paul goes from dealing in larger segments, now from verse 13 to verse 28, to dealing in all of these little tiny phrases that can easily be unpacked. We'll see tonight just a single sentence is going to form our main focus. And this makes sense in light of what we see in Scripture as a whole. There are some places that are pretty self-explanatory and then other places that merit some clarification, some building out of what is said. And you find, for instance, in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah, an account of God's people being gathered together in Jerusalem. And it says that certain priests who were teachers explained the book of Deuteronomy to God's covenant people as they gathered together. All of God's people were gathered together and they broke into groups of what seemed to be several hundred. And over each group of several hundred, there were teachers appointed to explain the things that they were reading and hearing. And even so, tonight, our focus will be to explain and to apply a single small piece of this epistle. Hear together with me the word of God in verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Brief, and yet this is the word of the Lord to us. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, there is not one word of your scriptures which will fall and not be fulfilled. And there is nothing that you've revealed which you've not given to us for our good. We pray that your spirit would be at work this evening to apply these things to us, both for comfort and also for our growth. Heavenly Father, please work deep within us, especially those who at this time are struggling with the very thing described here, to be at peace among ourselves. We thank you that you don't leave these things ultimately to depend upon our strength, but upon your power and your Holy Spirit. And you promise this in Christ, for in his name all God's people pray. Amen. Imagine for a moment I were to walk down from the stage here over to the piano and I were to press a single key. Maybe I even had my foot on the sustain pedal and just let that play for a while. A single note. Something like that may come to mind when you hear the phrase, be at peace. Be at peace because the word peace brings to mind the sense of tranquility, of calm. But in the context here, there's something bigger in view. What Paul is dealing with primarily is not the peace simply that you have in your heart. For instance, the peace surpassing all understanding that you have with God in Christ because he adds the words among yourselves. This is a piece involving other people. So it's not about a single note on the piano. It's about quite a few notes all at the same time. Now, 
When you look at verse 13, you see, be at peace among yourselves. Something not so apparent here. The phrase be at peace is actually a verb. And in Greek, the verb is in a specific form. It's a form that unequivocally is a command. This is a command that we are to maintain harmony and that we are to be peaceable. Now, with whom is he talking about? He says among yourselves. But we should be clear that he has in view the church, not the world. There is a sense, to be totally clear, we are to seek to be at peace with people in the world. For instance, what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. If possible, so far as lies in you, why does the apostle add so many caveats to the peace that we would have with all the world? It's very simple. The world and the church, the unbeliever and the believer, have certain irreconcilable differences. If you cannot accept that fact, you are going to have a very hard time in your Christian life. So while we seek to be harmonious in terms of our good character, in terms of our hopefulness and our willingness to reconcile with the unbeliever, nevertheless, we have an understanding there is never going to be a total peace In the world, Jesus, in fact, says this. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace, but in this world you will have trouble. Out the gate, many Christians enter into a tension, and even many professing Christians fall away because they strike upon the rock of wanting to have absolute peace with the world. And maybe they even misunderstood what Jesus was all about, thinking that he was preaching a message of get-alongism with absolutely everyone. But that is not what the Bible lays out, and certainly that is not what this passage is about either. In this passage, he's talking about the church. And that has to mean then, not simply the people that you gather with on Sunday and see for a brief period of time, it's relatively easy, isn't it, to be at peace with most of the people in the church most Sundays because we interact with very few of them. If that were all he had in mind, he, I imagine, wouldn't even bother to write this. But think for a moment, who are some of the members of the church? They are your spouses. Be at peace among yourselves. They are perhaps co-workers. Be at peace among yourselves. They are your siblings, Be at peace among yourselves. They are fellow officers, and they are people that you enter into ministry together in the life of the body. Be at peace among yourselves. And so it's worth asking the question from the very get-go, are you at peace? Is this congregation at peace among itself? And then that leads into, of course, the main question of this passage, which is, How do we walk in that peace? We're going to see tonight that the Holy Spirit is calling you to something which he himself guarantees is possible. And it happens through faith in Christ and the peace that he has established with us. So this is what we consider together tonight. We're going to do so as we go along under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Starting with this, before we can go any further, we need to be very clear about something something which I'm sure is established in the hearts of many, if not most of us here. 
Something which, on the other hand, cannot be overstated enough, both for the young and for those who are struggling. What is the peace that Paul is referring to? What does it actually look like? Because there are, in fact, counterfeits. What is the peace that we are to pursue? Hear what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 27. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The peace which the Christian has in Christ and which the Christian practices with the church is in certain respects different than the peace which exists in the world. And we are then to be careful not to practice simply the peace of the world. And as you consider the peace of the world, ask yourself whether or not or to what extent you fall into this. Because this then is what the Lord is calling you out of. And you shouldn't then think that you are unique. This epistle deals with it because it's been a problem from the beginning. Ever since the Lord regenerated sinners, but did not bring them to completion in a blink of an eye, this has been a struggle. What is the peace of the world? Well, sometimes, very often, the peace of the world is basically detente. You kids maybe don't know that word detente, but it's a military term and a political term. Imagine two countries are at war, and they're going at it, bombs are dropping, things are exploding, but then they agree to ease the tensions between them. They're going to dial it back, That's detente. It's an agreement to ease the tensions while at the same time remaining prepared for battle. There's a readiness. And sometimes this exists between people, does it not? Does this not exist sometimes in our very families and sometimes in the way that we relate to other Christians? We come to an agreement not to fire the first shot. But we are definitely ready We are definitely ready to return fire if someone else opens up. And we can even feel good about that. And I think much of the world feels good about that. They feel, well, I didn't start it. But look with me at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Christ warned us that being a Christian means carrying a cross. And a cross doesn't always look glorious. In fact, it rarely does. A cross sometimes looks like wrestling with the completeness of the words in that verse. No one, anyone, always. I think it would feel like less of a cross if it said, see that everyone but you repays no one evil for evil, or see that you repay evil to only most, or rather most people don't get evil. But it says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Just in the past week, how many of us have fallen? I am sure that I've fallen. Even if I'm not aware of the ways that I've fallen in that, the Lord sees the intents of the heart. And sometimes our circumstances hold back what's actually going on in the heart, right? And yet, the peace that we're called to is not keeping our armaments ready to go. No one repays evil for evil, but always seeking to do good to one another and to everyone, even the person 
who wrongs you. Often worldly peace is predicated on what you might call moral ambivalence. In other words, the willingness to turn something of a blind eye to sin. But that's not the peace of the world either that we're called to in this passage. And yet it does exist at times in probably all churches. People maintain peace in the church by not confronting, by not addressing sin. Or sometimes not until it gets to a certain level where it is so egregious that elders have to be brought in to deal, as we saw last week the passage touches on. Recently, I was reading a book about the cabinet of leadership during World War II under Franklin Roosevelt. And I came to a section I had heard a little bit about in the past, but I really wasn't familiar with. It described how the leadership in America and in England learned about an atrocity that had occurred in Poland during World War II. It was called the Katyn Massacre. The Soviet Russians had captured 20,000 Polish officers and summarily executed them. They were captives. It was a violation of the Geneva Conventions. Meanwhile, the Russians were allied with the Americans and the British. And there was a question whether or not the Americans and the British should speak up about this, what they should do about it. And it was ultimately determined at the highest levels that the alliance with Russia was more important than shedding light on that incident at that time. In fact, in a note to his foreign secretary, Churchill, Winston Churchill noted, as you investigate these things, remember that all of this is merely to ascertain the facts because we should none of us ever speak a word about this. Whether or not for the sake of exigencies of needs in politics or war that can happen, it cannot happen in the church. When sin goes unrepented, we cannot choose not to address it and then call that peace. See what it says in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Now, in the context of the book as a whole, idleness is a likely translation, though I do lean towards the translations which favor the word unruly. In any case, we don't have a choice not to admonish, not to confront sin, whether that's a pastor, an elder, or any member in the church. No one's gifts are so excellent that we can maintain peace by ignoring unrepentant sin. No one's reputation, no one's business No one's influence is so sacred and hallowed that we can have a peace in that way. Look at me at verse 23, and you'll see what our peace is patterned on. Our peace is patterned on this. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Our peace in this congregation, among all the members of Phoenix URC in particular, though this obviously extends out to all the Christian world, 
Our peace is patterned on the patience which God is daily showing to you through the gospel in Christ. Every day he remains reconcilable. Each and every moment of your sins, he never folds his arms and says, that is the end of it. I cannot be reconciled to you. Now, it may be that people tread a path of sin so much that after their profession, we can no longer cherish the hope that they know the Lord other than to hope against hope. But it's not because the Lord has ever put his arm out and said, you cannot come back to me. The Lord remains peaceable. And so our peace with one another is patterned on that. You cannot have one standard for your own relationship with God and a different standard for your relationship with other people. It's patterned on God's peace with us. He is faithful and he calls us then to faithfully deal with others in the same way. That is a tall order, but that's the kind of peace it's talking about. Moreover, in the context here, it's a peace that takes into consideration the order Christ instituted. If you weren't here last week, we saw that certain people, according to the word of God, are set over you in the Lord. That applies to me as well. Every officer in the church stands under the consistory, the body of pastors and elders. So there's not one person who is not under authority. And the context of calling them to be at peace certainly has in mind the fact that very often the differences, the dissensions, the fractures in a church come when people live at odds with the leadership in the church. This then is the peace that we're called to, one that is consistent with God's peace with us and with the government he has ordained. Probably very little needs to be said in one sense about why this is important, in the sense of adding information to you that you don't have. But on the other hand, it is important that we think through about the vitality of seeking this peace, because that is where you're going to feel moved by God to seek it. And so as a second heading, I want to lead you in this, in fact, first looking at chapter 4, verse 1. Think about why the pursuit of peace is so important. Why does this have to be something that you discipline yourself for, especially at the times when it seems least desirable? Chapter 4, verse 1 introduces really the whole section that we come into here. Paul has been working through something. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. What we come to tonight about seeking peace with one another cannot be separated from this, the life that is pleasing to God. The life that pleases God is a life at peace with all, not only some. And you can have peace with 99 and not with one and feel good about yourself. And in a sense, we praise God for any fruit there is, right? But on the other hand, the Lord loves harmony. Many of us, myself included, do not have a perfect ear. And we may not notice one little slip in the chord. But if you go over to play a chord... And just one of your fingers is on the wrong key. What do you have now? You have discord. And you can have many areas of your Christian life in order. You can have this one and that one and this one and that one in order. 
but you are not seeking peace with all. There is someone or several persons of whom you say, no, I will not rejoice in God's blessings upon them. I will take a measure of delight in misfortune if it falls on them. I will not cooperate with them towards the common good. And if that is the case, the Lord hears that discordant key and he says, this is not how you live in my home. The importance in the first place is that God's people, part of how we fulfill the mission or participate in the mission is by being a community that shows forth the first fruits of the age to come. The age to come is not one of discord. It's one of perfect peace and unity forever. Now, of course, we fall far short of that. But when the world looks in on our lives, it should be so immediately apparent. There is a difference here. And when they hear that you have experienced grace, but then they come to know you and they find that you do not give grace, that there's one person or another where you say, nope, they are going to relate to me on the basis of law, whether they have fulfilled these terms. This is discordant and it displeases our father. There's another reason why this is so important. And it's because a peaceable spirit is one of the inevitable marks of having the Holy Spirit. I want to be clear. We may fall short in this frequently. But as a pattern of Christian life, Christians do bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They would not be listed if that was not the ordinary work of God in believers. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. So we're not talking, how did you do on Tuesday at 4 p.m. when somebody cut you off, taken all by itself. We are talking as a style of life, how do you relate to your lack of peaceableness? Is it something that you have taken sides with God against? And by his grace, you are determined to grow in. And there is evidence of growth. The fruits of the Spirit described in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The fact that patience and kindness and gentleness follow after peace shows it's not just talking about the one key of your own peace with God. It's talking about whether or not you live in peace with other believers. Hear Jesus' warning. Verse 14 of Matthew chapter 6. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus cannot lie. And there are, of course, exceptions that we don't want to lay upon a very sensitive conscience. What if somebody had a fight with their spouse and the spouse leaves the house in a fit of anger, is driving, and there's a wreck and the person dies? Well, they didn't, for, they didn't have a chance to forget. This is talking about character of life. Character of life. 
But Jesus here is not talking about earning or losing your salvation on the basis of forgiveness. He's talking about the clear evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You who have been forgiven much, love much. Every Christian knows, every true believer has come to an understanding. I have been forgiven much, much. And conversely, Jesus says in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. If you don't have love for one another, then it raises the question, do we even know the Lord? Before the sermon tonight, we sang Psalm 133b. I invite you to listen very carefully to the words of Psalm 133b. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The image is not one of a little bit of the grace of the Holy Spirit figured to us as oil. Children, how much oil does it take to have it flow all the way down the head, the beard, and then soak into the collar? If you wanted to put that much oil on the head of your sibling so that their collar is soaking in oil, how big of a, a cup or a Tupperware container are you going to need? And the whole point here is that when the church dwells in unity, when that characterizes the body, this is a chief sign of the abundance of the Holy Spirit. Many churches look for certain other things as signs of the abundance of the Holy Spirit and yet are not in peace with one another, do not reconcile, do not extend the benefit of the doubt, rush to uncharitable judgments and conclusions. But how beautiful in God's sight is it when brothers dwell together in unity. And so this is very important because it is part of how we please God and how we fulfill the mission, how people are drawn to the gospel. By way of conclusion, I want to invite you to reflect on something, simply to reflect with me on certain perspectives that make for peace. It's one thing to understand what it is and why it matters. It's a different thing to actually walk in it. In fact, that's probably the hardest thing for most of us most of the time. How do we do this? In another place, the apostle says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And much of the Christian process of sanctification is exactly that. It's gaining the mind of Christ. And that happens by understanding what the word says and receiving what the word says by faith. Becoming conformed, renewed, in our thinking, according to the scriptures. And so I invite you to turn with me to another passage, 2 Corinthians. And look at me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which describes to us the mindset of Christ toward his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Hear what it says about the mindset of Christ toward his people. If anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Pause and think for a moment. When do we cease to regard someone in hope as a believer? At the first slip into sin? At the second or the fourth? Proverbs says that a righteous man may fall seven times and yet he stands up again. It's so easy to want to move into the status of treating people as if they are the old man simply because at times they act like the old man. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And sometimes the work of the new creation lies buried. There is such a thing as a low ebb of grace. And all of us, if we are honest, have walked in it at different times where we do not show the same degree of fruitfulness as we have and we may for a season entertain certain sins. And how will the body of Christ fare if every time that happens, the rest of the community turns and they treat that person not as a new creation created for the age to come? They'll wish quickly to expel rather than to restore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Just for a moment, in a certain sense, set aside the whole subject of this sermon relative to how you interact with one another and simply receive this. Whatever your sins may be, if you desire to be reconciled to God, he is willing to be reconciled to you through faith in Christ alone. Where there is true faith, the Holy Spirit works also to bring about repentance. But repentance is not the condition that you add to faith in order to earn God's willingness to be reconciled. It's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. And so we repent in faith. If you desire to be reconciled, he is willing. And then think of the Christian who maybe carries this enormous rock on their back and they carry it all over the place, not because the Lord's telling them to, and it's the thought, I know that in a sense he's chosen not to condemn me, but they think of that only in the sense of not sending me to hell. I know he's chosen not to condemn me, but you don't feel like God is holding his arms open like the father in the story of the prodigal son, waiting to, to receive you. And he's saying, trust in my love and my promises in Jesus Christ. Lean hard upon my willingness to reconcile. That peace is the kind of peace that you are then ambassadors of declaring in the world. You cannot begin to show this kind of grace to others if it is not your daily meditation 
Thank you, God, for making peace with me. Thank you, God, that you are peaceable. Thank you, God, that you are patient with me. The way that we begin to become a more and more peaceable people is by more and more reflecting, believing, and embracing God's peaceable spirit towards us. I can tell you that I have not lived in that to the degree that I know that we're called to because at every moment I'm not singing for joy. If we were gripped by this more and in those moments that we are, we do have great joy, do we not? Knowing if I die right now, I am that same moment entering into the greatest of all possible blessings because God was at peace with me, not because at that moment I was so worthy. And then reflect secondly on the power by which we practice this peace. Look at me at verse 23 of chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful He will surely do it. The God of peace is the sanctifier. And may he sanctify you completely. Now in context here, he's understanding that completion to be at the day of Christ. It is begun here and finished there. But still, it is the Lord who sanctifies us. I strongly encourage you. Don't wait until you are in strife with others to pray that God readies you for peace. Make it a regular prayer. God, strengthen me for that. And then when you are in the thick of it, go back to it again and again, confess in prayer, Lord, it is not in me, according to my old nature, to practice the peace you call me to. But it is in you, Lord, to form this in me. because How do you know that? Because he's called you to it. He's called you to it. And therefore, there is sufficient grace in him. I thank God that in many years here, our community has not been characterized by enormous fissures in our fellowship. But there have been some. There have been those who at different times, as in many churches, all churches, they depart and seek fellowship elsewhere or seek fellowship nowhere because they feel an inability to be at peace with God's people. And sometimes they say that they are at peace with God, but they have a problem with the church. They feel that they've been wronged and now they're going to depart. We saw last week God's ordinary design for his people is to be in fellowship with a church bearing the marks of a true church, overseers, etc. God doesn't call them out of that. He calls them into reconciliation. But then there are those also who don't depart from the church. They stay. But they stay and they nurse in their hearts an implacable spirit, maybe because they just know their spouse is not going to leave this church or their parents are not going to leave this church or they have certain obligations and they don't want to lose face in ending those and so they choose to stay for a time. Brother, sister, receive the word as it truly is. Though it comes from a mere human being, it is the Holy Spirit who works in you. And that conviction that 
you or another senses in this way, is the Holy Spirit at work? Not to condemn, but to give hope. He has not called you to hear this, except to give you the assurance that in Christ, this church can be a peace among all church. To a high degree, it has been. But by the Lord's grace, may it be more and more. Hear together with me this passage, and then we'll close in prayer. Philippians 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As we practice these things, we should not doubt that the Holy Spirit is at work. Let's then ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for having sustained in this church a high degree of unity. But then we look in some of our closest relationships and we confess, Lord, that much of the peace we have with the body at large is simply because we spend less time with them. Your word says how beautiful it is, brothers, who dwell in unity. And you desire there to be peace in the home, in the workplace, in our schools, as well as when we gather together as the full congregation. We ask, Father, that you would cause that more and more to be worked in and among us, and that the world, looking in upon our community, would, by your grace, be drawn to it, and that they would desire to be a part of your kingdom, where we have a king who is the prince of peace. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen.